Hi everyone, it's Steph. April and I are so pleased to be back from hiatus, but as you probably expect, there was a lot we wanted to cover in this episode, and because of that, the episode came out a bit longer than expected. Rather than cutting out April's extended monologue about Shia LaBeouf, joking, I would not do that, we split the episode into two parts. This is episode one, but make sure you check out episode two afterwards for some A-plus Twilight chat. Enjoy! Hi, I'm April. And I'm Steph. And you're listening to The Thirst. We're a podcast that looks at the latest in pop culture, including film, TV and music, as well as dissecting some very special topics of our choosing. You can find us online, Twitter, we're at The Thirst, facebook.com forward slash The Thirst Pod. We're on Instagram at The Thirst Pod as well. You can find us on Podbean by searching for The Thirst. You can also do the same on Spotify as well and iTunes and Apple Podcasts. And if you want to email us, you can do. Our address is thethirstpod at gmail.com. If you want to leave us some reviews on any of the podcast apps or platforms that you use then those are always brilliant um, if you can subscribe as well that's the best way to uh, stay updated with all of our new episodes and so people know that we exist we also have a blog as well that just gets updated every so often i'll be quite honest i haven't done it in a while <laughs> we've had shit going on it's fine life but it's the thirstpod.wordpress.com so uh this is episode 43 it's been a while yeah this should be like episode 65 but Stuff got in the way. We took a little break. When we entered pandemic life, we were like, oh, it will be brilliant because we can just do podcasts every week. We'll do loads more. And then we did one and then just collectively had like <laughs> a, a meltdown. meltdown. <laughs> uh, um, <sighs> yes. So this is episode 43 after a uh, hiatus of what month are we now? We're August. So this is month five. Wow. Oh my god. Some time has passed. Has it really been that long? Well, we so we did an episode in uh April, May. So it's only it's only been a few months really. But uh you know, in the grand scheme Felt of like things. Felt like forever. Felt like forever. Where is this year gone? Don't answer. Lovely that. to be back. Lovely to be back. Um do you have any puns for the number 43? I've got absolutely none. Oh, none. Okay. I've got two things that aren't really puns but Are they trivia? Mm, yeah. So there's that movie called Movie 43. Never heard of it. Have you not? Okay, so it's a really, really awful film in which loads of famous people are doing, like, weird stuff. It's quite famous for just being notoriously bad. Yeah, I've not seen it, but I know of it. It's mad. Can't say we'll be reviewing that anytime soon. (laughs) And also, the only thing that Wikipedia also told me was George W. Bush was the 43rd president of the United States. So there we go. That's nice, isn't it? That's a big fat note. Big fat note. Celebrity birthdays, though. Well, people who are 43. Go. You go first and I'll see how many I've got. Pretty golden, isn't it? I'm liking Lots of favourites, I found. I don't know if you saw that. Lots of favourites. Lots of weirdos. Just like people I've actually heard of. So I put at the top Alex Skarsgård, who is, in fact, the second best Skarsgård in the world. He is. Um, I put Alexander Skarsgård's brackets until 25th of August, anyway, because his birthday is in two weeks or... 12 days. Does that mean I can do him again next episode? Yeah, 100%. He can be on 44 as well. If there's one thing I love, it's doing Alex Skarsgård over and over again. Uh, Who else? Shakira. Yep. Don't know why I chose her second. Uh, Everyone's favourite, Kanye West, who I thought was like 67 by now. Everyone's least favourite, Ryan Reynolds. The emo we forgot about, Jared Way. (laughs) I've got Jared Way on my list as well. (laughs) Yeah, 43. Wow. Um, Sarah Michelle Gellar. Looking beautiful at 43. Liv Tyler, also looking beautiful at 43. Stunning. Michael Fassbender, who again I thought was probably a lot older by now. He's a hard 43. If you look at him, not not ageing well, I don't think. Hard 43. Hard 43. It's all that getting naked and... That stress of being nude. Uh, and I had Joe Manganello as well. Oh, good choices. I also had... I've got Chadwick Boseman. Oh my God, is he 43? He is, yeah. Mike Shinoda from Lincoln Park. Mike Shinoda? Mr. Han. That's not Mike Shinoda, but... <laughs> Lincoln Park is great, isn't it? Mr. Lincoln Park. <laughs> well, um, Milo Ventimiglia from uh, Gilmore Girls. Oh, yeah. Um, and who was the other one I just had? The- oh, John Bernthal, of course. Sort of ugly hot. Love him. So there we go. Those are things to do with 43. I'm glad that you get to do um, Alexander Skarsgård again. I think we've been so long that a lot of... They've aged. People have aged. <laughs> have aged to 44 by the time we get to them. But yeah, what a beautiful age. Can't wait to reach that myself. What am I talking about? <laughs> 
Oh, God. Okay, so news. So many things have happened in the time since we've not podcasted. And we're going to cover all of them. So we did make a list when we were doing prep for this, when we decided, like, oh, should we recommence the podcast? That's exactly how I put it, yeah. (laughs) It was a very formal invitation. In the post. (laughs) In the post. uh, I started making a list of, like, celebrity gossip we could talk about. One of the things that we'd struggled with since like all of this happened was like how famous people aren't really doing anything it was so boring <laughs> just dry there was that b- brief period where everyone was having fun on instagram and then everyone got really depressed so no one was really doing anything everyone was just falling apart weren't they right and now everyone is i don't know back to normal Let's- apparently we're all back to normal life is back to normal nothing is wrong anymore um so i've made a list i've gone through like about 70 pages of like just jared and all the other gossip blogs yesterday so i made this really stupid list and then we did a short list (laughs) we did a short list of the ones that weren't like this person did a thing that was four months ago (laughs) yeah i wish i'd kept the list actually i've taken them off of our show notes but some of them were so funny. I just was like, uh, could we talk about that? And then we were kept going like, mm, all I've got to say on it is this one sentence. Maybe not. My verdict on this is he's pretty hot. Yeah, Paul Mescal, we see you. So <laughs> Hi, Paul Mescal. Okay, so, but in the, I don't know, 48 hours, week, however long it's been since we decided we were going to podcast again, a few things have happened, which we were like, oh, that's perfect podcast content for us. So should we start from the top, the very exciting thing that happened this afternoon? Yeah, we're actually being timely for a change because usually we're commenting on stuff that's happened like three weeks ago. The stars aligned on this. I am stoked. I'd put it in our like potential plan and written like brackets, like if the trailer drops. I just thought it's not going to happen, but the stars have aligned. They have aligned. So uh, this afternoon, we're recording today on the 13th of August. And then this afternoon, I think approximately lunchtime, um, the trailer (laughs) for Netflix's The Devil All The Time made its way online. It had been teased earlier in the week with some preview photos in Entertainment Weekly. So we were kind of looking forward to it, knew it was probably coming soon trailer wise the film itself will be released on netflix on september the 16th so we don't actually have to wait particularly long which is always nice and we can stay at home and watch it which that's always cool it's directed and co-written by antonio campos who directed christine um which is a film that i think we saw together didn't we yes we did not the stephen king christine but the no that was john carpenter the christine which stars rebecca hall that lady yes that lady well remembered anyway um it's produced by jake john hall hi jake um and the film features an ensemble cast including Here's the list of people. <clears throat> Go for it. It's pretty top notch. Okay, Tom Holland, Bill Skarsgård, Riley Keough, Jason Clark, Sebastian Stan, Haley Bennett, Eliza Scanlon, Mia Wachowska, and Robert Pattinson, amongst others. So that's a real who's who of um, people that we. I don't know, like spending a lot of emotional time thinking about. It's based on the book by Donald Ray Pollock and it's set in Ohio between the end of the World War II and the beginning of Vietnam War and it follows a non-linear story of various disturbed people who suffer from the damages of the post-war and crime. Um, I got that from Wikipedia, so it makes no sense. Literally about to say you got that from Wikipedia because my plot, little your word plot for premise, word was pretty much that mixed in with a few bits from Vanity Fair. So, uh, well, I should have gone to a trusted source and not Wikipedia, really, shouldn't I? So it couldn't. It might not be about that, but who knows? <laughs> who knows? Anyway, um, what are your immediate reactions and thoughts and feelings to this particular trailer? There is nothing I love more than a a southern gothic drama. B an ensemble cast and see a cast which is predominantly made up of people I wish to kiss. So this is like the golden triangle of everything really, isn't it? A truly rich text. We've got Tom Holland as like good little Christian boy who's starting to lose his faith in God going into the darkness. But my favourite thing personally, obviously, is Billy Bill Skarsgård, who is apparently playing Tom Holland's father. Yeah, so I think that what I, the thing I gained from the trailer and then doing a bit, a bit of reading about it, so obviously some of it is set post-World War Two, and then the rest of it's in the build-up to Vietnam War. So I think that Bill Skarsgård will be playing Tom Holland's dad in flashbacks. I mean, I know that Tom Holland is young, but I don't think that he's young enough to be Bill Skarsgård. The Skarsgård's maths would son. be a bit off, wouldn't it, if Bill Skarsgård had Tom Holland when he was like seven. I mean, he's tall, but it doesn't mean he's a dad, so... <laughs> dad tool yeah i'm so excited accents accents everywhere especially tom holland who has clearly spent a very long time honing this accent um and it feels very believable 
Rob Pattinson, where to begin and end with him. My favourite thing was in this Vanity Fair thing, they described him as, quote, a roving preacher who grifts his way across town in a powder blue suit, monologuing with a heavy southern drawl about the various delusions that lead people towards sin. Who doesn't love grifting in a grifting suit? Grifting, suit, monologuing, weird accent sounds pretty much like... I will tell you right now that I am into the suit and shirt combo. It's a very frilly shirt and I... Love a frilly shirt. I One of my favourite things in the world is when Robert Pattinson insists on doing an accent. We've we've waxed lyrical about it on this podcast, actually. A million times. Just constantly a point of contention between us. I mean, I'm, I just... I watched this a few times as well. I think the best thing is that this came out when you were in a meeting. Oh my God. I was so livid. I was in a Zoom meeting as well. So it's not like I could even, like I was on camera. Watch it on the sly. Yeah, I just couldn't watch it on the sly. It was, oh, it was, I was climbing the walls. I was literally attached to the ceiling at one point because everyone else was reacting to it and I couldn't. But um, yeah, I'm so stoked that we've got like a month until we can watch this. It's weird, isn't it? Because I feel like we went through a period of not really having any new, like especially film content content to sort of work our way through we were initially weren't we just like watching like catching up with stuff that had already come out that we might not have seen but there has been a few things over the there's suddenly so much coming out i've got a load of tv stuff as well that i've like mainly american tv that's come out over there and hasn't come over here yet but is due this month it's so exciting to have stuff again it's nice to have stuff to look forward to especially because you know things are opening up a little bit but try not to do too much so it's nice to have a reason to actually stay in and watch something new and interesting as opposed to like re-watching the same things over and over which I'm not adverse to but this looks like it's going to be a riot I particularly like Sebastian Stan with a little paunched belly oh my god crooked sheriff crooked sheriff Seb Stan especially as I'm at this stage I'm not sure if I'm going to get the Falcon and Winter Soldier this year who knows at this stage this can be a little top up it can be a little top up um, I also love the fact that it's sort of like that Vietnam War era I'm really into that stuff April, if there's one thing I know about you is that you love the Vietnam War I just love the Vietnam War Honestly, she just talks and talks and talks about the Vietnam War. Constantly talking about it. Doesn't shut up about Vietnam War. Uh, yes so I think it'll be good I'm really looking forward to it and we haven't got to wait very long and I'm really glad that this happened today of all days. Woohoo! On to another thing that has been unravelling over the last few weeks slash months which I am very excited by is Megan Fox, who is extremely someone I can't help but love, who has been dealt a very hard hand in this industry. She was treated like shit by Michael Bay. She's never been given a chance. She was great in Jennifer's body. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. (laughs) Megan Fox is brilliant. And we've spoken about her on this podcast before, about how much we think she is an underappreciated, underutilised talent. So back in May, Megan publicly split up with her husband, Brian Austin Green. They've been together for quite a long time. Around the same time, total curveball, Machine Gun Kelly, who is someone we have not discussed on this podcast before, released a video for his song, Bloody Valentine, (laughs) which featured... I can't even say it with a straight face... (laughs) It featured Megan Fox, excitement all round, and he posted loads of outtakes of them together on Instagram, and I think it was pretty much a given from the get-go that there was like, there was like literally Instagram photo chemistry going on. I could tell through the photos that they were doing a bonk. You could just (laughs) tell. It's just very exciting. So that was back in May, and then on the 16th of June, Machine Gun Kelly tweeted saying, I I believe these are lyrics, I, I, I mean, I'm not. Did you verify it? No, I didn't bother Googling it, but I'm hoping that if they're not lyrics, this tweet literally makes no sense. So he tweeted um, saying, quote, I'm calling you girlfriend. What the fuck? And then he put life imitated art on that one. So, I mean, dot, dot, dot makes it cringe. It is a bit cringe, isn't it? (laughs) They were also pictured holding hands and making out in public, which pretty much gives the whole game away. And then a week ago, Megan tweeted a lovely picture of her and Machine Gun Kelly, whose real name eludes me who knows do you want to know what it is it's colson baker he is such a rich white boy isn't he colson Colson. right megan and colson i'm just going to call him kelly tweeted lovely picture of them together and the caption was (laughs) achingly beautiful boy my heart is yours jesus spoken like a true mum and then (laughs) so yeah pretty much giving the game away but megan fox and machine gun kelly appear to be dating and i think we're actually surprisingly here for it okay so 
we've definitely talked about how much we like Megan Fox and as more time passes I just feel so ex- like extremely fond and warm towards her because she's I feel great. like she's just lovely like isn't she she's just great she as we've said we've mentioned before how much we enjoy uh, Jennifer's body I also think that she's so good in New Girl um, yeah she was in a season or so of New Girl and she's just so brilliant and she's also, great I don't know I just think she's been dealt a shitty hand in Hollywood and it's just nice to see her doing stuff but also Steph what are your thoughts on Machine Gun Kelly so I have been (laughs) trying for a long time I have said that Machine Gun Kelly is a quite laughable and b just disgusting and I would go absolutely nowhere near him but I am here today to swallow my pride and admit that he might be like ever so slightly sexy I think he's cute man I mean if you watch him in a video talking it's like no okay turn that off but there's something about him I'm so embarrassed to admit that on audio yeah so am I it's fine but the thing is if I think too hard about you remember that was that video where he went to that record company's office and like played them his new song and yep. he's like dancing on the table and it was like the most embarrassing thing ever awful yeah if I think too hard about that um, I feel slightly unwell the illusion yeah the spell is broken isn't it but together as a couple they are so hot yeah I feel like her hotness like evens out all of his perhaps less interesting qualities <laughs> ironing out his flaws yeah 100% she's like looking at the sun it's ridiculous she's so gorgeous and she's a good mum and she's an actress she does all these things I assume you saw the Brian Austin Green sassy salty tweet which he uh, not a tweet Instagram really stupid response to her Instagram thing last week with the achingly beautiful boy he posted a photo of their sons and wrote as a caption achingly beautiful boys my heart is yours Firstly, just like, sore loser. Secondly, I really fucking hate this aggressive bad mother angle. I just think that's so petty. It's so, so needless because it's like, I think when I looked, I think they've been together since about 2004. I think Brian Mm. Austin Green's slightly older than Megan Fox. Yeah, because she's not that much older than us, is she? No, I think she's 33, 34. I think Machine Gun Kelly's 30. He is not 30. Yeah, he is, according to the internet. Look, Timothy Chalamet gets away with his ludicrous behaviour because he is basically just out of nappies. But this guy, he can't be 30 and like dancing on tables well, in like record label offices. That's not acceptable. Uh, yeah, so the bad mother angle, I think, is like so needless and so pointless because that relationship obviously came to an end for whatever reason. And I think for me, whenever Brian Austin Green, because I think he's done a couple of interviews where he's talked about how he's, you know, really disappointed that she's moved on so quickly. But I mean, like, and... Don't be salty. What's, what's quickly? Like, what, what is time at this stage? What I mean, firstly, what is time? Time doesn't mean anything in 2020 and secondly this extremely rings of and I'm saying this from personal experience exes who are grumpy that you have quote-unquote found someone too soon and what they actually mean is I'm annoyed I didn't find someone first that's not the way around it was supposed to be so if he'd found someone first I'm willing to bet he wouldn't be posting salty Instagram things about Megan Fox. Can I just read you a quote that Megan Fox said about Machine Gun Kelly? Yes. So at the end of July, they did a joint interview on a radio show. I think they've been working on a film together, which I think is how they met back in March. Mm. So they did a interview together on this particular radio show, which is also hosted by the director of the film they're both in. So she's talking of the director... I was like, who's going to play this role? And he was like, oh, we just got Machine Gun Kelly. And immediately I was like, uh-oh. Because I knew I could feel that some wild shit was going to happen to me from that meeting. But I wasn't sure yet what. I just felt like deep in my soul that something was going to come from that. And then she says that, oh, this is the, my absolute favourite part. She says, after meeting on set and filming for two days, she says that she felt an astrological connection between them. I knew right away that he was what I would call a twin flame. Instead of a soulmate, a twin flame is actually where a soul has ascended into a high enough level that it could be split into two different bodies at the same time. So we're actually two halves of the same soul, I think. I said that to him almost immediately because I felt it right away. And then she also says that the first day that she met him she sat him down and asked him loads of questions so she could do his astrology chart i didn't know she was big into zodiac signs contains multitudes does megan what is she talking about what is she talking about i mean we wish we do wish them well truly i i have a sneaky feeling this may not last forever but 
I do wish them well and I would like to be proven wrong because they look pretty hot together. Right. And I hope they're happy. Good luck to you both. <laughs> On to even bigger and better news. I'm going to, again, try and get through this with a straight face. So this has truly been the week of Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion. Nothing is compared. Nothing else has dominated my brain except from the devil all the time when it dropped today. So that sort of maybe knocked it off the top spot but uh this is something we've talked about pretty much constantly for the past few days the single for wap which translates as quote wet ass pussy or in brackets the censored <laughs> wet and gushy which i think, I think is worse. so much worse i think that's worse wet and gushy i don't like that um also they say gushy but there you go maybe they're northern so <laughs> the song and the video for wap dropped on the 7th of august it's the lead single from cardi b's second album which is due out this year which is very exciting it's directed by colin tilly who has directed a load of videos before hasn't he in commercials and worked with a lot of rappers and such i don't think we've had a video this wild since anaconda which we were discussing earlier we were i mean i don't even know where to begin with this Apart from, I cannot believe how amazing both of these women look. It's just a lot, isn't it? So if we go into the video, so we've got Cardi and Megan in this multicoloured labyrinthine mansion with butt statues and water fountains with water jets coming out of the boobs and big cats and a snake room. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot of stuff going on in this. Can I just read parts from the Wikipedia explanation Please of do. it? Please do. I love a Wikipedia explanation. Go on. Because I went on Wikipedia because I just want to check like the dates and stuff. And they'd for some unknown reason, I don't think I've ever seen this before, but maybe it is a thing on Wikipedia for music videos. They'd included like a brief synopsis of what happens. I think someone just really wanted to write about this. Right. It just made me laugh so much. So as you said, it's directed by Colin Tilly, who's done a whole bunch of other music videos, including he's done a few for Nicki Minaj's and I think that he did the video for Anaconda I mean that would make a lot of sense it would it? make a lot of sense the Wikipedia synopsis begins Cardi and Megan open the video in the mansion hallway wearing <laughs> custom Nicholas Gerrand dresses with long trains opera gloves and matching updos during Cardi's first verse they also appear in a snake filled room the next scene shows both rappers in a green and purple room wearing Thierry Mugler outfits composed of a corset of bodice mesh tights and sleeves with Megan performing her her first verse. They then perform a dance routine in an indoor pool wearing black latex bodysuits. For her second verse, Cardi B appears in a leopard-themed room wearing a matching long-sleeved bodysuit with cutouts in the front. Well, by cutouts in the front, what it essentially means here is that she has her boobs out uh, and she's wearing pasties. Big old boobs. So there we go. Um, with leopards surrounding her, Megan appears in a white tiger-themed bathroom with white tigers around her in a black and white garment. And then at the end, it just goes. The video also includes cameos from Kylie Jenner, Namani, Rosalia, Mulatto, Ruby Rose, and Sukani as well. So there we go. I just thought, like, what a lovely synopsis. I mean, you almost don't need to watch the video now. No, right? Yeah, completely. The thing is, it just completely takes out all of like the absolute sexual charged chaotic horny energy in this video i don't know what you're talking about i found that was loaded with horniness (laughs) right yeah oh god so that gives you a little snapshot of what the video is like this song just like it's so catchy it fucking bangs doesn't it it really bangs so good it really really bangs so it, it came online last week and i'd sort of been observing all of like the absolute meltdown on twitter and stuff and then i finally got round to watch it you know when you're just like oh this probably isn't as good as everyone's making it out to be and then i finally got around to watching it and i was like holy shit it's so good i mean as expected there have been various reactions to the video and everyone always obviously focuses on the negative so there was quite a lot of negative reaction to kylie jenner being in the video which i mean honestly i just never dare criticize cardi b for pretty much anything because she's going to claw your eyes out with those massive nails but um she basically hopped on twitter and just said like in short i'll invite whoever the fuck i want um so fair enough ben shapiro who is the conservative commentator and the co-founder of the daily wire he had a lot to say about the song and the video (laughs) and he did this it possibly more famous now than the video itself is uh, he recited the lyrics to the song in the most awkward, unsexy, cringeworthy way ever and was criticising it as an affront to the feminist movement, blah, blah, blah. And what was it that he said? Oh, this was my favourite bit. It was his... Was it his P word thing? Yeah, it was the P word. 
the P word, refused to use the word pussy. God knows why, probably scared of it. So was using the P word as well. And there was this also amazing, <laughs> this amazing tweet from him where he said, as I also discussed on the show, my only real concern is that the women involved who apparently require a bucket and a mop get the <laughs> medical care they require. My doctor's wife's differential diagnosis, bacterial vaginosis, yeast infection or trichomonis. This is amazing. Someone tweeted in response, Ben Shapiro reporting that his MD wife told him she's never gotten wet during their relationship, except as a result of vaginal infection is, how do I put this dryly, in retrospect, perhaps the world's most predictable cell phone? Um, (laughs) Which is true. I love the idea of him being concerned for a woman's well-being because she's sexually aroused, as if that's something he's never come across before. It's so, just, uh, I've really enjoyed, I say enjoyed, <laughs> I've just found like the reaction to it just like so, so funny. It's like there's never been any other song like it when actually I can think about like, you know, there was a similar reaction, so I guess, when uh, Nikki dropped Anaconda and if, oh, yeah. oh, I think about like Lil Kim songs and stuff like that. There's so mm-hmm. many things over the years where it's been like women, especially women in like rap and hip hop mm-hmm. talking explicitly and openly about like sex and sexual desires and it's always like boring white men that get really up in arms about it so I mean it was like sort of inevitable yeah talking about it in exactly the same way as their male counterparts as well I think I said to you like yeah I would much rather listen to Cardi B talking about this than Lil Wayne talking about like a dirty sewer so yeah. I would much rather listen to this also this is way catchier that article that we both read, there's a Vulture article by Rachel Handler. Oh, my God. Where, uh, called We Asked a Gyno About WAP, which is definitely worth reading. It's just, I'm really glad that there are, you know, hard-hitting journalists out there asking the questions that we all demand to know, which is about, like, the logistics of all these situations. Like, whether it's medically advisable to allow someone to touch the little dangly thing at the back of your throat. Yeah. Also, my favourite lyrics of which I gave you a partial dramatic reading on WhatsApp, which is not going anywhere else. I like the bit where she talks about swiping your nose like a credit card. Yep. Great. I like the bit where they say spit in my mouth, because I think (laughs) Rob Pattinson would approve. Oh, God. I like the bit about macaroni in a pot, because I just feel like that conjures a very distinct sound (laughs) effect. I also like the fact that a lot of people interpreted that not to be a sound thing, but to be a visual thing which really confuses me <laughs> slightly horrifying um and yeah the thing about the dangly thing as well i think the best thing about the video of which there are many is the fact that like so many lines of it have just entered everyday like rhetoric already i've seen so many people referring to like famous people that spitting in the back of their throat and i feel like I've- <laughs> right? and it's literally been it's been less than a week and this yeah. is already going to be entered into the dictionary so just what joy honestly like the other day i did think that i had listened to that song so many times that on the you know when you look up an artist on spotify and it gives you like their top ranking songs at the moment yeah WAP was second and then after a few listens it went up and i was like oh god i think i've listened to this so much that i've actually bumped this song in cardi b's rankings myself yeah so in short this is one of my favorite songs of 2020 probably ridiculous like complete song of the summer and absolute highlight of the week hot girl summer nice synergy there like it <laughs> so onto things that we've been enjoying recently um like we were saying it's been a bit of a kind of weird few months of things sporadically making their way online but it's nice to have something new to talk about so we're going to start with movies and we're going to talk about palm springs which is something that i sort of looking forward to seeing and then wasn't particularly sure when we'd get a chance to see it um but we did watch it uh last week now it was just nice to watch something new i've just really 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 enjoying as, as much as i've enjoyed re-watching stuff it's just been really nice to have some new content to um, yeah enjoy. i think we kind of as a lot of people went through that phase especially during lockdown of needing almost like comfort watches mm. and comfort listens and yeah. revisiting things that made us feel better and i know i certainly didn't watch like a lot of new stuff at that point yeah also there wasn't a lot of stuff coming out so it's kind of nice that we've reached this point where things are coming out a bit more now and I feel like I'm branching out. I'm not just watching like Lost Boys on repeat. Yeah, for sure. I've definitely had to diversify what I've been watching and I think because the, the releases of a few things have been delayed or pushed back to next year, like I was looking actually at the 2021 like potential release slate and there's just like so many things that are going to be coming out in such rapid succession now because everything's been pushed. But despite that, so Palm Springs is a 2020 American romantic comedy film directed by Max 
Babacow, which is his directorial debut and is written by him and Andy Sierra. It tells the story of Niles, who's played by Andy Samberg, who is a... Again, I just love these synopsis, so I did not (laughs) word this. He's a carefree bridesmaid's boyfriend. A carefree bridesmaid's boyfriend. That diminishes his presence, I feel, personally, but whatever. So it's Niles and Sarah, who's played by Kristen Melotti, a cynical maid of honour and sister of the bride who get trapped repeating the same day at a wedding which takes place in the California desert as well as Andy Samberg and Christine Melotti also stars Peter Gallagher J.K. Simmons Camilla Mendes Tyler Hoechlin uh, and Meredith Hagner amongst others so like I said I'd been looking forward to seeing Palm Springs it had its world premiere at a Sundance Film Festival which I think is like one of the only film festivals that actually happened this year yeah they got it they snuck it in before it all kicked off yeah so that was right back in January Uh, so shortly after that Neon and Hulu acquired the distribution rights to the film and they reportedly paid 17 million five thousand or five hundred thousand and sixty nine cents for the film which 69 cents yes oh. because it broke the previous record for the highest sale of a film at Sundance by 69 cents so the 69 cents was essentially just like a gesture just to make it break the record which is they one of those they like, didn't even bump it up to a dollar no right I think it was just a joke so it debuted in January was looking forward to being released and then obviously lockdown and pandemic blah blah blah. Um, so the film was released in select theatres by Neon and digitally on Hulu uh, on July 10th 2020 so it's sort of been pushed to a more video on demand streaming platform release rather than in cinema when we were watching it I was actually thinking that this for me and I think in a couple of articles that I've read and a few other podcasts where they've discussed it they've said something similar which is this for me is like a perfect film that like you would watch on demand or watch on streaming like I'm a really big Andy Samberg fan so I probably would have gone to see this at the cinema regardless would you seen it at view for five pounds yeah 100 percent but actually, it like makes sense on a streaming platform. Mm-hmm. And also, I feel like as well, it's one of those weird pieces of like depressing the stars aligning, I guess, in that like because the film itself. Oh, do we need to do a spoiler warning? Little spoiler warning. Spoiler, spoiler. Moderate spoiler warning. So the premise of the film is that it involves a time loop. So it's got a time loop narrative, kind of like Groundhog Day, but not really. But it has that same kind of repeating the same day over and over. And there's something kind of funny about the fact that it's ended up on streaming during a pandemic when a lot of people can't go out and do anything and every day essentially feels the same. You, um, yes, we have been living on our own Groundhog Day. Is, absolutely. And, is basically it. And that's like something that you like completely can't, can never have predicted. But it is this sort of weird piece of kind of, I don't know. The irony. The irony, right? That is the dictionary definition of irony, isn't it? So you mentioned that this is not necessarily something that you would have ordinarily watched. No. So off the bat, I do not really... I mean, I say I don't like saying I don't do rom-coms because that I, I don't like the idea of saying you just sound like a wanker, don't you? Like, I don't do this. I don't regularly watch romantic comedies particularly. Um, I've probably watched about two this year. They're just not my go-to, really. So there's that. And also the fact, and I'd, I'd said this to you, I can sort of barely tolerate a time loop slash Groundhog Day narrative just because it stresses me out so much. Possible exceptions being Russian Doll and there's an episode of Supernatural in season three called Mystery Spot, which is amazing. But it, I don't, I think it's like part stress inducing and part the fact that it has been used a lot. Mm-hmm. Like it's a very well-known trope, isn't it? Yeah. Um, this idea of being stuck in a loop and going over and over again and trying to change the, the course of time. Saying that, I really liked that you went into this film sort of knowing what you were getting, but then also having some of those tropes turned on their head. So I think I think the makers of this film had talked about it being kind of like a sequel to a movie that doesn't exist. So you don't meet the characters before, well, you don't meet all of the characters before they go into the time loop. Mm-hmm. You kind of arrive in the middle of things. Yeah. Yeah. And the fact that there are two people experiencing it together um, who are at kind of different I don't want to give away too much, but different stages of acceptance about what they're stuck in. So there's the two of them together in this thing that has already started when you kind of get in there, which is turning it all on its head. So I did like, for that reason, firstly, I liked the way that they played with those ideas. 90 minutes for comedy is always the sweet spot, isn't it? Surely illegal to be any longer. All films should be 90 minutes or less, in my opinion. Right, so much. Uh, legitimately funny, probably because Andy Samberg is 
so silly. He's so silly. I don't know. If you're not a fan of Andy Samberg, like full stop, I don't think this film is going to be for you just because it does rely on his comedy a lot. But I just think he's great. I really do. He's just a complete delight. He's legitimately funny and it is because he's silly. I like that silly comedy. He's very, very silly. Like That's why he works in things like Brooklyn Nine-Nine so much. It's why that his work with The Lonely Island is so appealing to me. It's like almost slapstick. It's just dumb. Is dumb funny. Dumb, good-hearted, like, oh, God. I just, he's just completely a delight. I think that, like, something you touched upon there was the kind of twist that it puts on the sort of time loop scenario because obviously a lot of the time, like you say, in time loop films and narratives, it tends to be, like, one protagonist that is experiencing this and everyone else is largely oblivious. But the idea of having someone to spend time with in this scenario to Mm -hmm. make it kind of, like, less isolating is like so incredibly interesting to me and you sort of see the way that this affects both Niles and Sarah like going forward and different ways yeah completely there's this idea of like the way that they have different levels of acceptance on the situation Mm -hmm. like you said how they kind of play around with it how they test the limits there's like an entire sequence of things that they kind of occupy their time with you know I really like those contrasts because I feel like that's you know every individual is going to react to this like absolutely horrifying experience (laughs) in completely different ways like I know that I would definitely not be chill or anything like that so afterwards Wes and I were just spending some time thinking about like if we could spend the rest of our lives on a particular day or with a particular person I mean we used ourselves there as an example like what that would be and where I don't know if we came up with anything really I think I thought about it too much and it just stressed me out and I had to stop it's kind of stressful isn't it so they do go through this like range of emotions like Niles in particular is almost like quite resided to this situation whereas Sarah on the flip side wants to actually problem solve and fix it she's a she's yeah she's the thinker isn't she she's the doer completely trust a woman to get it sorted honestly right and I think it's interesting as well because a lot of time in time loop narratives the path to getting out of it is sort of some kind of act of self-improvement like that's definitely the through line on Groundhog Day is that Bill Murray's character needs to kind of come to terms with like being less of an asshole and just generally being nicer and and sort of changing his ways I think they address that as well like Sarah says like I think we have to like do something selfless in order to yeah and she like tries it out and it doesn't work and then it's like oh okay cool that's just not the I might just go read some books and work this out logically yeah completely and I think that the idea of setting it at a wedding as well there's a lot to be said there about like um i think i'd read an interview with the director in which he sort of talks about how the idea for the film itself came from when him and his writing partner were at a wedding in palm springs and they were just kind Mm. of talking about you know what it would be like to be stuck in the scenario of like constantly going to weddings all the time which i think when you get to your when you get to your 20s you know especially your late 20s you do find that you will suddenly have a flurry of weddings i don't ever see that as a particularly negative thing because i love love weddings yeah i I mean, we love a wedding, but again, they're stuck in a day which should be like one of the best days ever. So you're like at a wedding. Weddings are great and very upbeat. You're in a beautiful sunny spot. There's a swimming pool. There's alcohol. It's full of really nice people. There's kind of a dream day. You're on holiday, basically. So they're living a really lovely day over and over again, rather than just waking up on Groundhog Day in somewhere mundane. Yeah. And yet you don't, you get bored of it pretty quickly, even in that. Instance. Absolutely. And I think that kind of links to that idea of like the idea of marriage as being a time loop. I don't know. I just thought the execution of that was just like very, very interesting. And it was like a complete twist, I suppose, yeah. on other time loop movies. Only other film that I could think of that it reminded me of a little bit in that sense was About Time, which is the Richard mm-hmm. Curtis film with uh, Rachel McAdams and Donald Gleeson. Yeah. I don't know, I just really liked it and it just definitely felt like the type of film that you could go back to again and again and like take different things away from because I Mm -hmm. feel like the more I've thought about it in terms of the narrative and the way that played out, it made me kind of want to go back and kind of see if I could pick up on little like pointers towards how things are going to go. I hate the idea of like calling something like the perfect lockdown film, but this (laughs) definitely does tick those boxes, I feel like. It would have been even funnier if it had come out when we in full lockdown Jesus right the irony probably would have been too painful to even imagine but this yeah coming out of this time when we've just been through that was like a nice little slice of fun with a certain amount of familiarity certain amount of shaking things up with a really nice sort of sweet ending I really enjoyed it so during this sort of weird period of lockdown non-lockdown not really seeing each other properly meeting from a distance um we have done a lot of like mutual watching of stuff but then we've also been working through us 
things individually as well and there are a few things that have come out that ordinarily we probably would have covered on the podcast but we are now not going to go back and do because it's too much april it's too much time has passed and um, but we just did want to shout them out in case anyone thinks like why haven't you watched that thing because the odds are we have we just haven't mentioned it so here are some kind of films that i've managed to find time to watch since around may so big one for me which i can't remember if i mentioned it on the last episode i didn't go back and check i will be quite honest with you is beastie boys story came out which is the documentary stage performance of the beastie boys tour they did to promote their book that they wrote a couple of years ago this is via apple plus this to me was just an absolute joy i've spent so much of my time over the last few months just like absolutely mainline the beastie boys in such an absurd way they're very dear to my heart i didn't get the chance to go and see any of the theater performances they did of the book so it was a really nice opportunity for me to watch that is also directed by spike jones who's one of my favorite directors and a frequent collaborator of beastie boys so that was a delight uh, we watched watched Extraction which was the Chris Hemsworth oh god we did didn't we being an action man it was fine the fact that I forgot about that is I think my review of it was like sure why not bit awkward in places fancy Chris Hemsworth completely uh, I also watched The Five Bloods on Netflix which was the mm-hmm. Spike, Lee Spike Lee Vietnam drama it's amazing I, with Nam. I really just hey it's Nam an interesting period Nam, Nam. this was a really amazing film I really like this I think this will definitely be in my top 10 or whatever of 2020 I watched Disclosure as well which is a documentary on Netflix which is about trans representation in TV and film so I really recommend that um, I also watched Eurovision The Story of Fire Saga <laughs> on Netflix starring my favourite Will Ferrell and your mortal enemy freaking Will Ferrell and then Bad Education on HBO Now TV which is a Hugh Jackman school inspector fraud drama which is based on a true story this was really really good actually and I thoroughly recommend anyone check that out if they get the chance to and then two things that we watched together one of which is actually coming out in the UK this weekend so if you get the chance to see it baby teeth which is a coming of age drama starring uh, eliza scannon and ben mendelson just like one of the best things i've seen in a very very long time that was a lot man fully knocked us for six didn't it, it was very intense yeah. very recommended but don't feel like shit before you go into watching it don't feel sad because we felt sad on the day we watched it and it hurt quite a lot unsurprisingly it fucked me up it did yeah and we also watched relic as well which was fine oh yeah two stars two stars two out of five on letterboxd sure um and i also watched the tax collector which we might talk about at some point oh yes that is a future one for me to watch i don't have loads to add to that that to be honest i only wrote down a couple of things that i actually enjoyed nothing that i i forgot about things like relic etc so the other two things i've done quite a lot of rewatches recently actually but two things that i watched very recently were color out of space which is oh yeah the Lovecraftian horror actually based on a Lovecraft story called Color Out of Space which features Nicolas Cage and is uh, quite an interesting companion to Mandy actually I really enjoyed it it's relatively batshit I mean it's it's Lovecraft and Nick Cage so it's it's exactly what you'd expect really but um yeah I really enjoyed it and I also watched Host which is something that a lot of people have been talking about online came out on Shudder it's a film that was entirely written directed and filmed during quarantine uh, and it's it's an amazing 60 minutes long who'd have thought it and it is about a bunch of people on zoom friends on zoom who are holding a kind of a seance of sorts and they managed to summon something that uh, they didn't intend to and it all goes very wrong and it absolutely shuts me up and I watched it in the daytime and it scared the bejesus out of me too close to home I think at this point yeah watching people on zoom just being haunted in horrible ways was just absolutely too close to home Um, So I was really surprised by how effective that was. It's really, really good. And it's worth all of the praise that's being heaped on it. I've seen that talked about quite a lot, actually. And I um, was really hoping that you you had had the chance to see it because I felt like it would be something that would be right up your street. But I'm now slightly terrified to ever watch it if it made you slightly stressed. For something that was, yeah, as I say, made at home on a small budget with a small crew, they did so well. They did so well. And it's now getting like a, I think Prince Charles Cinema in London is going to host a screening of it and stuff. So it's, it's one of the really good horror films in particular that are really good films actually that have come out during this quarantine period highly recommended if you like being scared on to television and something that we both took the time to watch recently and that a lot of people have been talking about and heaping praise on is I May Destroy You, the British comedy drama series which was created, written, co-directed and executive produced by Michaela Cole who is an absolute force of nature 
It premiered in early June on BBC One and HBO, and it stars Michaela Cole, Rucha Opia, and Papa Esiedu, amongst others. And the general plot synopsis is, again, might have got this from Wikipedia... So Arabella, who's played by Michaela Cole, is a Twitter star turned novelist who found fame with her debut book, Chronicles of a Fed-Up Millennial, and is publicly celebrated as a millennial icon. While struggling to meet a deadline for her second book, she takes a break from work to meet up with friends on a night out in London. The following morning, she struggles to remember what happened to her, though soon realises that through the help of her friends, Terry and Kwame, that she was drugged and taken advantage of. So begins her process of recovery with her friends in tow. So Cole stated in a lecture at the 2018 Edinburgh Festival Fringe that she'd been sexually assaulted whilst writing her TV show Chewing Gum and that the experience had provided inspiration for the series. I think we both heard quite a lot about this when it first started showing on BBC. So it was it was played weekly rather than having the whole 12 episodes drop in one go, which makes for a nice change. I kind of had no expectations of this until I heard all of the really positive things. But I also didn't know quite when I'd be prepared to start watching it because it's not something that you can just... I don't know, I think you know going in that it's going to be a bit of a heavy watch. And I think you started watching it before me and I'd kind of promised myself that I'd I'd find a good kind of comfortable time in which to start watching. And then what I did actually do is choose after a night of not sleeping at all, I got up at like five o'clock in the morning and started watching this with a cup of coffee. Absolutely insanity. Why did I do that? Do you want to riff a bit, tell us what you thought about it? Because there's there's certainly a lot to take in with this TV show. Yeah, definitely. So I, I started watching it, I think, a week after the first epi- couple of episodes made their way online. I'd seen lots of like critics who I respect and whose work I really enjoyed were talking about it quite a lot. I think it is a, a collaboration between BBC and HBO. It definitely aired on HBO in the states mm-hmm. anyway so i kind of knew that it was going to be like of a certain caliber mm-hmm. so i'd been watching it weekly they did do, i think it was two episodes at a time they were dropping it here yeah, which was yeah. brilliant i think in the states actually they did one episode a week but here they were doing two and they're about half an hour each there are 12 of them and i feel like the half an hour length is like perfect because the intensity and the kind of seriousness and just full-on element of it were quite a lot to take in i often found that like doing two back to back was hard enough Mm-hmm. let alone trying to like binge it all in one go so I'm glad that I kind of kept up every week I feel like it's being unfairly compared a lot to Fleabag which mm-hmm. is like absolutely lazy in the sense that I think Michaela Cole is one of those like extremely amazing talents bit of a polymath like you know has, has done play stuff she's you know done playwriting she's done tv she does she does so much she's got a lot going on across the board similar to Phoebe Waller-Bridge in that sense mm-hmm. I suppose but because it's that kind of smash hit critical every, everyone's talking about it a lot in the same mm-hmm. way that people did talk about Fleabag um, mm-hmm. so that was something that I just kind of found a bit strange initially there was all of the chatter that was surrounding it because I think the two programs themselves like while I suppose there are some similarities to a point um, yeah. there isn't there isn't really that much overlap I was yeah I was kind of thinking the same because I mean we've discussed this before the sort of the rise of the idea of this sort of quote-unquote millennial British mm. drama so obviously yeah. there was a huge huge reaction to Fleabag there was a huge reaction to normal people mm. um, which are which are great but you know they're very they're very white they're very middle class yeah I really enjoyed them but realistically there's I mean it sounds horrible for me to say there's like a, not that much I don't want to say there's not much substance to them that's not that but I mean I think they are more superficial in a lot of ways yeah and as you say like it's a really lazy comparison to say that these this show is similar because it is written by someone who is young (laughs) within a certain age bracket and is writing a drama that's set in London or Dublin or wherever all of these are. I think that's the thing is that it's just the happens that everyone's looking for that kind of like Fleabag-esque runaway Mm -hmm. success and this has sort of been the thing that everyone's been spending a lot of time with over the summer but I think it really does diminish the brilliance of what Michaela Cole has done with it. Like, Yeah I think it's pretty clear that Michaela Cole's talent is kind of leagues above the rest because the quality of this show really is leagues above those other things and they are tv shows that we both equally you know did enjoy but i think the show is so sophisticated it's such a great mix of 
drama and you know trauma there's a lot of darkness in it but there's also a balancing amount of kind of wit and humor and I think it it also turns a lot of those like stereotypical millennial expectations on their heads so you know the fact that these are young people in London like working class London who are sort of you know young internet addicts and party types etc etc and it really fleshes these people out way beyond that completely I think you get like a well-rounded look at like who they are as people and their relationships and their lives I feel like it's such a different look at what it means to experience and survive trauma and and assault Mm. like it doesn't show you tidy resolutions or that it doesn't also show you that like you know this event is like mass destruction it sort of carefully plots the idea of how you come to terms with a situation how you then try and negotiate life and your relationships and friendships and just everything else thereafter and I think that's been what I've really enjoyed sort of the discussion surrounding is actually how it's sort of quite refreshing and like it shouldn't necessarily have to be refreshing but you know it's just we don't ever get the opportunity sometimes I think to sort of see these things on screen or then have something on screen that then triggers these discussions about things like consent and stuff like that do you know what I mean and I think that one thing I often kept seeing come up a lot online was the discussion about the contrast between like the British handling of a situation Mm -hmm. versus anywhere else i.e the states especially when it comes to the reporting of the sexual assault and the way Mm -hmm. that the Mm -hmm. police officers handle the case and you know everything thereafter there is quite a contrast Mm -hmm. between that the other thing I found very interesting as well so you mentioned that it is particularly rooted within you know London as a space Mm -hmm. which I think was really lovely to see actually at a time where like I don't even know when we're next going to go to London you know so it was kind of nice to see especially Mm -hmm. East London and like Soho and stuff like set around there one thing I kept seeing come up quite a lot actually which was sort of strange and made me feel quite uncomfortable on a few levels was the fact that a lot of American critics and viewers were talking about how they were struggling to understand the British dialogue and they were having to watch it with subtitles because they don't understand what people were saying and I think it is difficult when obviously like I mean for me I didn't struggle at all because I watch a lot of like British programming so like it's a non-issue but it was very interesting because I I think I'd seen a few comments to that effect there were a couple of big critics actually that had said had made like vague tweets about it and then went back and were like oh by the way this was I may destroy you which fair play holding themselves to accountable but it was just very odd to see yeah I feel a bit uncomfortable about that as well because it is set within like a working class like predominantly black community like it yeah. I don't know there's something that sits a bit weirdly there saying that you know because I think there's a there's a mix of you know I don't know geography and culture and quite a few things going on there in terms of, of the way that people are speaking and communicating and interacting yeah it's really it's really bizarre and then I think because I think it's so embedded in like black British culture and this is something that like many many other people have talked and written about mm-hmm. since the show has aired online and I really encourage you to like seek out other the nuanced perspectives on it one thing in particular just going back to the language and the fact that it's so rooted in black British culture Mm -hmm. is there was an article on Vulture that was written by Bolu Babalula who is someone who's awesome she's such a delightful Twitter follower as well so you should get on that the article was titled The Innate Black Britishness of I May Destroy You Mm -hmm. and in it she talks about a whole load of things including the importance of black British culture language aesthetics and heritage to the Mm -hmm. show itself Um, Mm and she cites there was a Telegraph review. I don't know if you saw this. Alison Pearson did a review uh, in the Telegraph. Oh no! Do you know what? I haven't read any. I haven't read any reviews of it. This particular review, she basically was sort of praising it, and then she says how she was like, "Oh, the fact that they're black is irrelevant," which for me felt really backhanded and dismissive. And in this article, Bolin mentions this, and she says, "The texture of I may destroy you, a complex tessellation of contradictions, layered convergences, and multiple conclusions, is hinged on black Britishness. It is innately connected to it. Sophisticatedly woven themes of consent, sexual politics, and social media's power to amplify, soothe, and subsume are not presented with." in a neutral vacuum but rather within a specific black British sphere and like I really encourage people to read this article in particular we'll link to it because it was just so interesting to read especially when I'd had my own slight misgivings about the way that people were reacting to sort of like the language and and just like the real black Britishness to it and I suppose it's Mm -hmm. because I suppose culturally in the UK we're often bombarded with things from abroad i.e. the states particularly when it comes to representations of black culture so it's really interesting to 
to see the way that when it happens from the other direction so like showcasing like black british culture and then it being exported to the u.s how it's received that end if that makes sense so i found that it was just really 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 interesting it's a i mean and it taps into a lot of conversations that a lot of people have been having in recent months in much more eloquent ways completely and i think that like it's really easy to kind of there were, there were elements of like arabella's life and her friendships and stuff um, that resonated with me but relate to yeah it's relatable but it's also a very specific experience completely yeah there were just sort of a few things that i kind of be like oh yeah i definitely you know recognize that in people i know or blah 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 but then a lot of it was just sort of like not within my cultural wheelhouse because it's mm-hmm. so embedded in a particular culture within the uk and that's just brilliant like it's why it was so wonderful to watch because you just don't ever get the opportunity to watch something like this on such a main- mainstream level that's getting mm-hmm. such critical praise and i think that's mm-hmm. just that's just the brilliance of michaela cole i think is that she manages to sort of like take something that's sort of quite a heavy and intense topic across the board as well not necessarily mm-hmm. just the, the assault itself you know like the repercussions and the way that it fractures your relationships with friends and then the things that are going on in your friends lives as well you know like it sort of mushroom clouds out and I think that I mean there are 12 episodes in this and I don't think there was any episode where I was like oh that's rubbish like there was oh, just God, 12 no. consistently mm-hmm. different tonally independent episodes you know, my favourite, or not my favourite, but one I enjoyed particularly was the sort of the flashback episode mm-hmm, where you mm-hmm. go back and you see Arabella and Terry when they're kids um, in high school and you see um, there's another, Theo, I think is their friend mm-hmm. who's from high school and you sort of see a bit of Theo's background as well. And like going back to how it completely nails British culture at that time, like because we are a similar age mm-hmm. to Arabella and, and Michaela Cole, there was just, the soundtrack in this is like, insanely good the soundtrack is very good there's like a trifecta of songs in that like flashback episode which I listened to a podcast and they were like making reference to one of these songs being like oh yeah like it's an old British dance song and I was like no I don't think you understand like the cultural legacy of like Flowers by Sweet Female Attitude like that is so is that there's like the Girls Like Us by B15 Project there's A Little Bit of Luck by DJ Luck and MC Neat and then Baby Cakes Mm -hmm. by Three of a Kind and you know I like I was listening to the playlist earlier and i was like this just takes me back to like such a specific it's a very specific period of time it's like little things like that yeah it's like the absolute like use of musical cues to just tonally take you back and i just think that shows you tension to detail in this i just I, I was really blown away by it. Like I think I knew a little bit about it going in, and I I didn't watch any of Chewing Gum, so this was my mm-hmm. first experience of Michaela Cole's like work. I mean, I started watching Chewing Gum, and I got about halfway through. I need to finish it, um, and I did really enjoy it. But this does feel like it's just I don't know, just leagues above. Really, it's so sophisticated, and as you say, like I think I went into it feeling like it would maybe be a more straightforward narrative that focused on a very specific traumatic event. But actually, you know, you follow Arabella as she puts these pieces together. But during this journey, she's also unlocking other memories that she has repressed. And as you mentioned, you know, like times from school, times with her family. She also experiences other traumas that on the surface might seem, I don't know, smaller than the, the bigger narrative, but they are actually just as impactful and just as damaging. And then you also have these other experiences that her friends are going through. And there's this really nuanced examination of consent not just related to the rape that Arabella experiences but also other scenarios like having a sexual partner remove a condom which is something that I've spoken to friends about before who didn't realize that that was rape or being raped or sexually assaulted without penetration you know or being sort of duped into a threesome basically all of these gray areas that I feel like are rarely discussed in depth yeah it was so I don't know so refreshing and so eye-opening to see that I mean I have to say it is very I mean it's funny and as you say it's you know it's quite nostalgic in places but it is also very traumatic so I think it needs to come with quite a big trigger warning in that respect yeah completely like it's one of those things where I feel like it's absolutely worthy of everyone's attention because it's so brilliant but I also like really encourage people to approach with caution and Mm. also to like maybe read up on it a bit because I don't think that you will ruin your enjoyment of it by reading synopsis or anything like that and I do think it's 
one of those things where actually knowing a little bit about the content is mm-hmm. probably worthwhile mm-hmm. just for your own kind of like well-being and safety because I think that there were parts of it where I definitely just felt like really unsettled and really mm-hmm. shaken by it so anyone else that may have experienced anything that's happening in the show itself I think would probably have quite a visceral reaction to it mm-hmm. so definitely approach with caution I have to say that the main friendship group as well between Arabella Terry and Kwame is so so fully fleshed so rounded Arabella is not just defined as a victim and you've got Terry as you said as the best friend who's desperately trying to support her friend and also feels guilty that what happened may in part have been you know her fault and there's a lot about friendship you know what the good and the bad and the frustrating and the you know the lovely and the I don't know it's it's just so well-rounded um, and I also really liked from a personal point of view the the writerly angles as someone who works with writers you know the job of being like a young female writer who with an internet presence and she's following up her successful debut with a second book which is often something that people struggle with is sort of almost trying to match their own height and this idea of like you know the stereotype of being like a young procrastinator who just fell into something by luck and also there's a point where Arabella is almost expected to write or draw on her own trauma for the art and her publisher sort of cheerfully says they're like oh you should write a book about your rape and it's I don't know it's just there's so much going on in this there's so much it's really interesting isn't it especially if you think about the fact that like Michaela Cole is writing from her own experience yeah absolutely and also shout out to the period scene because I think a million people have said this but um rare if not the first time I've ever seen a blood clot on screen I had to absolutely laugh out loud at that it was an iconic moment but as you say just Um, I haven't read anything about it actually I don't know why I haven't I've just but I mean there's definitely if you stick a load of stuff up on the website on social media I'd love to have a read through because I I imagine there's some really wonderful writing out there about it yeah I'll put together a little sort of reading list of follow-up things for people to read up on once they've enjoyed the show so like movies uh, we've also been watching some tv together I think we mentioned that we did true blood um, about a thousand times but we did true blood we finished it seven seasons congratulations well done us to us both what a truly I mean that actually got us through lockdown didn't it we started that right at the beginning of lockdown and it fully saw us through until June I don't know what I would have done if I hadn't had that to distract me every evening having the routine of like nine o'clock we're gonna watch true blood was so yeah, good just an absolute godsend so thank you true blood thank you Suki Stackhouse Thanks, Suki Stack. Painfully frustrating human being. So when we finished True Blood, we were trying to think, what should we watch next? We threw around a few ideas. One of them was watching Sons of Anarchy. (laughs) Yeah, it's still on the to-do list, I reckon. Hey, never say never. We don't know how long everything's going to take. But instead, we decided to rewatch Hannibal because the entire world also seemed to be rewatching Hannibal because it made its way onto Netflix. And we thought, why not? I think my favourite thing about this is that when everyone was talking about it, I think you'd said to me, like, why is everyone talking about Hannibal? Oh, it's just been on added on Netflix. Has no one watched Hannibal before? Why is everyone making such a big fuss? And then like two days later, we were like, we should probably join it, really. If you can't beat them, join them, April. Why not? Got to be part of the cultural conversation. Um, So we're doing that. We are... How many episodes into season three are we right now? I've lost the plot. I actually can't remember. Four? Yeah. Five? I, I, I reckon like four or five max so we've been doing that initial thoughts and feelings on experiencing Hannibal again I oh what I would like to know is who everyone's favorite dog is in Hannibal yeah that's probably the the main thing that we've spent a lot of time talking about and it's I mean Winston's like a given isn't he because he's kind of like he's like the Harry Styles of the dog group the One Direction dog cast I like Jack as well Jack is so good and it does really confuse me that the dog's name is Jack and there's another Jack but I think the obvious is Winston followed by Jack also the unbearable sexual tension between Hannibal and Will Graham it's poetry yeah also why Hannibal is at every situation and no one seems fussed I think I don't know whether I'd just taken this I mean maybe I did feel this frustrated last time and I just blocked it out because the entire TV show is just equal parts entertaining and just absolutely horrific but I don't remember getting as frustrated about the fact that Hannibal just gets invited or turns up to random FBI scenes all the time throughout the first two seasons he just lets himself in with his own key basically doesn't he so I watched the first season and then half of season two and I can't remember if it's because at the time I think I watched it weekly 
Maybe the parallels weren't as obvious. It wasn't like, why is he here again? But that was definitely something that we kept picking up was like, why is he here? He's only a psychiatrist. Like, why would you invite a psychiatrist to this situation? I mean, there are no ethics in this show. No. No one working for that team is following any protocol. No, fully exploiting Will Graham at all costs. You should all be fired. Yeah, Jack Crawford's got a lot to answer for, I think. So maybe we'll do like a nice little roundup when we are finished with it. Do a Hannibal deep dive. We'll do a Hannibal deep dive, we could do. And then after that, we can just become a full lost podcast. Oh my God, I'm so excited. Can't believe it. Dream come true. Get to rewatch Lost. We're going to rewatch all of Lost. So maybe we'll, you know, do some lost episodes not penny's boat not penny's boat um i have inexplicably watched a lot of tv you usually don't as well i never do it's really funny because when i think about when we did this podcast in pre-pandemic times i would have watched like one tv show ever and you would have watched lots of tv and then i just would have watched lots of films but Mm -hmm. of late i've just been blasting through tv so a few things i've watched never have i ever which was on netflix which is the mindy kaling produced teen comedy we did also watch normal people we haven't talked about it on the podcast oh yeah yeah, we did. I've just written here, horny Irish. Yeah, they're the two things. That's like my favourite. If you want to get on my me on board, it's horny and Irish, really. Horny but, and um, Irish. Enough people have spoken about it. I watched The Last Dance on Netflix, which was the Chicago Bulls and Michael Jordan documentary series. I oh, watched yeah. The Babysitter Club as well, which was just wonderful. I'm fully obsessed with Betty, which is HBO. It's on Now TV, which is about a skate crew, the skate kitchen in New York City. I watched all of season two of What We Do in the Shadows as well, which was lovely. Lovely. I watched Devs on BBC, which like made my brain melt. I forgot about Devs. Yeah, so I watched it right at the start of lockdown because I'd been really impatient and had um, downloaded it all while it was airing in the States. And I think it came to the UK around my birthday. Um, And by that point, I had just finished it. And it Mm -hmm. just made... It was like, I really enjoyed it, but I also watched it at probably the worst time I should ever have watched any piece of Alex Garland content. It was quite a lot. They never leave me feeling particularly happy. No, I can't say so. Zen. They just filled me with anxiety and doom. Yes, absolutely. So... That was a poor show on my part. And then I also watched the Showtime documentary series, Wu-Tang Clang of Mikes and Men. Um, oh, yes. Yeah. I watched half of that and then I went to bed and Wes finished it, which was... Me and Wes have had many conversations about it. It was wonderful. I bet he has ran off without me. Adding to that, I did also watch Normal People with you. And I did also watch Devs. Wes and I finally watched Carnival, which is something that we've mutually said that we wanted to watch for perhaps forever since the dawn of time. So really glad that we finally got watched that. There's only two seasons of it before it was fatefully cut short. It's brilliant. It's so good. I loved it fully exactly what I wanted to be, wanted it to be. We rewatched Spaced inexplicably for a bit of a laugh and <laughs> Wes has been watching Peep Show as well and I drop in and out of it because I can't... I think I just don't deal very well with cringe, you know? Do you not? No, just can't really deal with cringe. So I can sort of watch a peep show like maybe twice a week and then I have to have a break from it because the cringe makes me want to, I don't know, peel my own skin off or something. My favourite thing about peep show is that... So peep show, one of the writers, Jesse Armstrong, also is the showrunner on Succession. And I've been re-watching Succession, actually. That's a really that's a really important thing I should have mentioned. Of course. And I really enjoy making the connections between peep show and and succession because there are occasionally little bits of dialogue from peep show that like creep into succession which just fills me my heart with joy i love it that's so yeah i do still need to watch succession i'm I'm so sorry one day Um, one day one day um i got into watching catfish in the mornings at one point as well so that was good (laughs) fun and i also recently watched i'm not okay with this on netflix which is a short I think it's six episode sort of high school slash coming of age slash supernatural sci-fi thing with Bev and Stanley from It randomly. They're both in it. I can't remember their names in real life, IRL. So sorry about that. Um, But I watched that in about, I don't know, three hours and that was great. So I really enjoyed that. Um, I think that's pretty much it that I can think of off the top of my head. Good little haul. Yeah, definitely. Hello, me again. This is where we decided to expertly slice our episode in half to give you a bit of a breather before we head into the main event. When you're ready, hit download on part two of this episode and join us in the company of Bella Swan and Edward Cullen in the town of Forks, Washington. I assume you know exactly what I'm talking about. Bye! Bye!